It is with great joy that I open God's Word with you on this All About Him weekend to a passage that has been very special to me for many years now, and the reason is that the very first message I ever preached here as the uh, senior pastor at Bethel was from this passage. In fact, this is the passage of the first All About Him message. This is the 16th of these messages, and we're going, uh, we're going old school. We're going back in time, and we're going back to a passage that, in my opinion, is probably the most all about him moment in all of Scripture, and I have had a certain fondness for this passage uh, all of these years, and I think you'll know why in just a moment. So we are in Revelation chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me give you the, the setting, because Revelation in particular provides some very challenging uh, interpretive challenges. That's redundant, isn't it? Marriage does that to you. You begin saying the same thing over and over again. I love you, I love you, I love you, you know, that kind of thing. So the setting is that there were seven churches in Asia Minor that were struggling. And the Apostle John is given a vision from God that God intends to be delivered to these seven churches. And they were struggling for any number of reasons. They were struggling for the same reasons that, that, that we struggle, that you and I struggle, uh, getting through the day. Uh, making faith work in the, in, the, in the humdrum and in the day-to-day of life, uh, the challenges of being a church and being with people who are so different than us and all of the little tensions and challenges that being in a church family can represent. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, indeed. So they had all of that going on, but on top of that, they had uh, this crazy, tyrannical emperor named Domitian who was the Caesar of Rome. And all of the, all of the Caesars were, to a certain degree, uh, egomaniacs, but Domitian falls into the category of being a megalomaniac. He was absolutely committed to the expansion of his own ego, and, uh, and he worshiped at the feet of his own uh, greatness. And uh, to give you an example of this, Domitian uh, required, he was the first Caesar to do this, that when he was addressed, he was always addressed dominus et deus, which means master and God. He thought himself to be a God and made the decree that whenever any God was worshipped, that along with the worship of that God was to be the worship of Domitian himself. Now, clearly this uh, ran afoul of Christianity because in Christianity there is no other God uh, but the Most High God and uh, that there is no one that we bow before but Christ himself. So Domitian was no fan of Christianity. In fact, he was the emperor who banished the Apostle John who writes the book of Revelation, uh, banished him to the small island of Patmos, one of the Greek islands. So these little churches, on top of all the other challenges, were living in a day when the number one most powerful man in all the world was committed to their destruction. 
And they could wonder, couldn't they? These little churches, remember, this is in a day when the leader of, the, of, the, of Rome was a guy that you never saw. You, you didn't have TVs to watch his speeches. You didn't know anything about him other than what you heard. And what you heard was that he's a God. And they could have trembled and wondered, well, if Domitian's a God, is, there, is, is the God that we worship more powerful than him? And they trembled in their day. And to encourage them, God gives this, this vision to John there on Patmos. And he, we call it revelation, but in reality it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of it was that these Christians in these churches would not lose hope. Now I have to believe here today we have a few brothers and sisters who might be somewhat in the same category of need. Came to church today hoping for a little bit of encouragement, a little word from God that might let you leave today thinking that, you know what, God is on his throne. And so this message, let's see if it, if it does what it did for, that, for those churches. We pick it up in, in, in uh, let's just pick it up in chapter one. Chapter one is a vision that God gives to John of the risen Christ. Read it on your own time. It's fantastic. Uh, feet that are aflame, and, and uh, all the, the beautiful, his eyes and his sash, and there's just a majesty about uh, Christ, the Son of God. You get to chapters 2 and 3, and Jesus gives an evaluation of the spiritual heartbeat of these seven churches. And it's a fascinating study to see what Jesus thinks about these churches. They had a reputation for being A, uh, but Jesus says, you're B. And this is what I think of you. And we could ask the question if Jesus was to give an evaluation of Bethel Church and of your heart, what would he have to say? We may have a reputation for being A, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus' perspective would be something different. We get to chapter 4, and now it transitions, and it says in chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And all of chapter 4 from that point on is a description of the glory and the majesty of the throne room of heaven. And there is a picture there of a high throne. And the one who is sitting upon that throne is a glorious being. And around the throne there's a rainbow. And there are, there's lightning and peals of thunder and a sea of glass. Do you know who it is on that throne? It is none other than God the Father. The glory of God himself. John has a vision of it. And he says, this is what I heard. There is an unceasing praise in the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And guess what? When they got done with that verse of the song, they went back to the beginning and they said it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So that if we had today a kind of uh, listening device where we could hear what's going on in heaven. We would hear the crashing thunder, and we no doubt would hear things that we've never heard before, but one of the things that we would hear would be the angelic host worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy 
Our God is a holy God. Our God is a morally upright God. Our God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. It is the majesty of God, and we need a fresh vision of how great God is, don't we? Chapter 4 is that, but that's not the chapter we're studying. You get to chapter 5, and this new drama unfolds, and here's what it says, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John describes now, almost kind of in a play-by-play, what he is seeing and what he is experiencing. And he says that, then I saw in the right hand of him who sit on the throne, and we already identified him as God the Father. In his right hand is a scroll. And this scroll is the fascination of the first part of this chapter. And it says about this scroll that it was in the right hand of God, and it was a scroll upon which there was writing within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what is this scroll? What is he talking about here? Well, Part of it is understanding the way that they did books in the ancient world. Like here I have my Bible. This Bible is similar to uh, books, and you you have books probably at home, unless you're totally a Kindle reader now, and now you've gotten rid of books, so this wouldn't apply. But in a a printed book, in a bound book like uh, like we have today, the pages are all cut, and then they're bound along a spine on the back side, and so you read the book. You know, I get done with this page, and now I turn it, now I got this page, and then I got this page, and we work our way through the book. Books in the first century were not bound like this. They were, uh, they were scrolls, and the way that they did it is they would take leather or papyrus, and they would match them one after another, and they would connect those papyrus, papyri, technically, uh, and up to 30 feet or longer would be these scrolls, and they would write on the inside of the scroll so that, like if this is the writing on the scroll, the way that they would protect it, we protect it with a binding and a cover and all of that. The way they protected the scroll is they would simply roll it up. And so then the writing would be on the inside. It's very simple. But what, is the, what does the text say about the scroll that's in the right hand of God the Father? It has writing where? on the inside and on the outside. Now, in the first century, somebody would see that and they would go, aha, that's something very special. Because then, back then, the only kind of document that would have writing on the inside and on the outside was a document like an official document, a legal document, a will, or some other thing like that. When you saw writing on the outside, you're like, that's a really important document. The text says that, It was sealed with seven seals. Now, the way that they would seal their envelopes uh, and even their scrolls is that they would take wax or clay, and they would would put a bit of it there, and sometimes they put a stamp. In fact, I recently got a letter from somebody, and they sealed it with wax, and it had like the the letter of their name imprinted on that. I kind of opened it. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. You don't see that much anymore. But that was very common back in the first century. Now, what does the text say about the seals? How many of them were there? Seven seals. 
seven seals. If you got an envelope in the mail and there was a series of seven seals that you had to get through in order to read the letter, what would you think to yourself? Somebody's suing me, right? (laughs) If somebody goes to the trouble of putting all of these seals on this letter, this must be a really important document. And everything that we see here is here to tell us that this is a really important document. It's in the right hand of God. It is in his right hand. It has writing on both sides. It is sealed not with one seal, but seven seals. So what is this scroll? What is in the right hand of God? If we had time, we could keep reading Revelation. You can do this on your own this afternoon. And what you will find is those seals that are opened, not to get ahead of the story, but somebody is going to come and is going to open the seals, they basically form the outline for the rest of the book of Revelation. The first seal is broken and judgments come down upon the earth. The second seal is open and judgments come down upon the earth. You get to the seventh seal and he opens that one and then there's a whole other series of judgments that come from it. So that this is what we can say about this scroll. This scroll is God's decree and divinely purposed plan for everything and everyone for all time. He is holding in his hand what he has purposed, Ephesians 1.11, and that he intends to work out. It is the plan of God's judgment. It is the plan of God's blessing as well. His plan to redeem his people. His plan to give them eternal life. His plan for the new heaven and the new earth and the final judgment and all the rest. All of that has been written down and it is in the right hand of God. It is his scroll. And all of heaven... You might say, ah, oh, it's a dumb scroll. When's this service going to be done? You read the text. All of heaven is fascinated by this scroll. In fact, look at the text. Look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. It says a mighty angel. Yeah, I would say it was a mighty angel. How do we know that? Because he shouts and what he says is heard in every quadrant of the spiritual and the physical universe, that's a, set of, uh, that's a set of vocal cords, isn't it? When you can shout and be heard in all those places, that's a mighty, mighty angel. And he shouts, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now that word worthy is, is an important word in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, and this is what it means. Who is qualified? Who has the glory? Who has earned the right to approach the very throne of God and take something out of his right hand? And not just take it out of his right hand, but open it. And by the way, opening it is not simply looking in it to see what it says. It is the authorization to execute the judgments of God, to basically adjudicate 
the punishments and the blessings that God has written down for all of mankind, for Satan, the demons, and everything else. Who has the glory? Who has the chops? Who has the power? Who can do that? The angel cries out. And guess what John heard after that question echoed into every quadrant of creation? Nothing. Silence. Silence in heaven. Silence on earth. Silence in every galaxy. Silence from the dead. There is silence. Now we may look at that and say, well, come on, what's the big deal? Somebody just get up there and do it. Well, this mighty angel knows that he's not worthy. He's the one asking the questions. We know that Michael is the archangel. Where's he at a moment like this? He's not worthy. How about Gabriel, the messenger angel? He kind of was important, wasn't he? Where's he at in a moment like this? He's not, he's not saying nothing. He's not worthy. In fact, can you imagine with me maybe this mighty angel hearing nothing and beginning now to try to get somebody to do it? Can you imagine him saying this? Hey, all right, angels, we know that none of you are worthy, but we got all these humans who've ever lived. Hey, any of you worthy? Can any of you come up and take the scroll? How about some of your great leaders? Abraham Lincoln, where are you? You got something to say? Alexander the Great, man, you're called the Great. Where are you at? Come on up, can you do it? Or maybe him saying, how about some of your smart people? You've had a lot of smart humans. Einstein, where are you at? Come up and figure this out, E equals MC squared, come on. Nothing. Silence. How about your philosophers, you humans? Socrates, where are you? Aristotle, come on. Can you help us? Silence. So silent that maybe he would say, how about some of you artists, you musicians? It's so silent here. Can you do something now to help us? Beethoven, where are you at? Play something. Michael Jackson, you got something for us. Silence. We need somebody to say something clever right now. Mark Twain, where are you at? Can you, can you do anything? How about you rich humans? We know money's really important. And you rich people... Got something, Rockefeller, where are you at? Buffett. Any of you pharaohs, you had gold. Does your money mean anything now? Can you do something? Silence. How about some of your great moral leaders? Gandhi, where are you? Mother Teresa. Francis of Assisi. Who is worthy? Silence. All tremble. The text says that John begins to weep. 
Why does John weep? In the words of Criswell, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve, driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over their first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son, Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect throughout the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience in the trials and sufferings of life heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And I wept audibly, for the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. Let me summarize it this way. John wept. Because if there is nobody worthy to open that scroll, we're all going to hell. And then verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of these elders that's described earlier sees John weeping, goes up to John and basically says, stop your crying. There is one who can take the scroll and who can open its seals. And the language that he uses here is very vivid and very important. He says he is the lion of Judah and the root of David. Both of these, if you're an Old Testament reader, and I hope that you are, kind of spark in your mind because you think, wait a second, I have heard that language before. Old Testament messianic titles uh, of Christ. He is the Lion of Judah, uh, Genesis 49. He is the root of David, another very regal. David was a king, and he is in the line of David, Isaiah 11. Both of these are describing royalty and power. In fact, Lion of Judah is one of, one of our favorites, right? Because what's a lion? A lion is powerful. And when you think of a lion, what do you think of? Right? He's the most powerful. He does, where does a lion sit down? Wherever he wants, you know. That's the lion. And so the picture here is of majesty and glory and power. Who's worthy to walk up to God and take that scroll and open the seals? Lion. And so John, no doubt expecting to see a majestic, powerful being. But here's what he sees, verse 6. And between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And the focus leaves the scroll, and now it comes down upon the lamb. The last thing you'd expect to see 
when you look to see the one who's so powerful that he can take the scroll is a lamb. In fact, the Greek word there is not just for a lamb, it is for a little lamb, a baby lamb, a little you lamb. Small, cute, cuddly, tiny, there by the throne of God. And look at the language here. He says that this lamb looks as though it had been slain, yet it is standing. What's the color? Visualize this with me. What's the color of a, of a little lamb? Every child knows it. It's white, right? And so here you have a little white lamb, but his white wool is splattered with blood. Maybe he's, you can see a slit across his throat. Why? Because it looks like he's been slain. It looks like he ought to be dead. And yet, what does the text say? He is, are you with me? He's standing. He's standing. And if you're standing, it means that you are what? You are alive. So he looks like he ought to be dead, and yet he is standing. He was slain, and yet he is standing. And the imagery here is symbolic. It's a little bizarre, but it says that he has seven horns and seven eyes. And John uses the number seven to represent completeness or perfection. A horn was a sign of power. So to have seven horns means that this little lamb is what? Perfect in power, absolute in power. To have seven eyes means that he sees everything perfectly. He has perfect knowledge. He has perfect wisdom. So I hope that you're tracking with me here in what we're seeing, what John saw, because it is a vision and it is imagery. And if you came to me after the service and said, do you think that John actually saw a lamb or he used, what, uh, he used the imagery of that to describe what he saw? I would say, I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know who the lamb is. That lamb is Jesus Christ. And we see in this, this powerful redemptive symbol even in the lamb. The lamb in the Old Testament was a sacrificial animal. The, the Egyptian or the Israelites, before they left Egypt, they sacrificed the Passover lamb. We find in the Levitical system that over and over in the tabernacle and the temple, the Israelites would take a lamb and would sacrifice that lamb on the altar for their sins. In the New Testament, John the Baptist sees somebody and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is a lamb? It is a sacrificial animal. Who is this lamb? It is Jesus Christ. And we have this, this fascinating imagery, don't we, of uh, picturing all the redemptive work of Christ. He was the sacrificial lamb who was slain, who is standing, who has all power. In fact, just to make it very clear, he is the lamb. What does that mean? Atoning sacrifice. He was slain. What does it mean? His cross. He's standing. What does it mean? His resurrection. His horns and his eyes, absolute power, absolute knowledge and wisdom. What we have before us in the symbolic language of revelation is the revelation of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? It's a wonderful one. 
And look what happens in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This little lamb, whose fleece was white as snow, when nobody who has ever lived, no angel, no demon, Satan, Gabriel, Michael, nobody could approach that throne. Here comes the lamb. And it says that he takes the scroll from the right hand of God the Father. And the Father allows him to do it. And in doing it, bestows upon him absolute authority to adjudicate the punishments that are coming down upon this earth. He now is sovereignly ruling and reigning and enacting and executing all that God has purposed. Domitian couldn't do it. No president could do it. No thinker could do it. No athlete could do it. No musician could do it. But Christ could do it, and he did it. He did it. And what flows from this is this incredible worship service, which is the rest of chapter 5. And I don't have time to really get into all of this, but I want to read it, okay? Look at what happens simply because he takes the scroll. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Keep praying, God's people. Look what we see right there. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Ah, oh, that fire you up today? To see that kind of a spot and think, oh, and you know what? I, depending on your interpretation, but I think we might be there for that. Won't that be fantastic? To me, it's the greatest all about him message, or well, I don't know about message, but passage in all of the Bible. Because there you have the lamb at the center, his redemptive works on display, concentric circles all around him, angels, myriads upon myriads, and every person who has ever lived. And what are they doing? Giving praise to Christ. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. All glory and might and honor and, and praise be unto him. One rapturous, glorious, powerful, passionate worship service. Look what happens when people realize who Christ is. 
And I'm getting ahead of my application, but do you see it? And why is it important that a church realize what the whole thing is all about? And why is it important that it's not simply a mental realization, but a heart, passion? Because look what happens when God's people realize who their Savior is. It energizes the church. It energizes God's people. It unifies them, every tribe, tongue, language, and people. What, what does that in this world? The United Nations? I don't think so. They fight like crazy. Christ unifies. And when God's people realize who he is, the skin color and the social categories and the educational and all the rest, they all go away. We don't care why, because he is worthy. It unifies the church. Do we realize how worthy he is. It's all about him. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time in application. I've got two applications that are just kind of free, and then I've got the, the money one, okay? The main one. Now, here's just a couple that I think are, I, I throw these out because I think they're part of why God gave this revelation. The first is this. God's people be encouraged. There is a higher throne. There is a higher throne. Remember, the church of Sardis and the church of Thyatira and Pergamum and, and Laodicea, what were they struggling with? They had this Domitian emperor who everybody said he's a god and he demanded that he be worshipped and they could wonder, is there anybody above him? Is he really the highest throne? And here we see that there is a transcendent throne. There is an ultimate throne. And all the human courts and all the presidents and all the kings and all the sheriffs and all the teachers and all the bosses and all of the maniacal evil men in this world who apparently win will give account to the highest throne. And this is an encouragement to God's people because oftentimes we feel we get into life and maybe it's because of our faith or maybe not, but we live in a world that's broken and there are people that do things against us and we feel like their foot is on our neck. I got a boss who is la la la. I've got a husband who is la la la. I've got, I've got some governmental situation I'm facing, la la la. Or maybe it's something in my past where somebody has hurt me or betrayed me. And that wound is still an open wound in my life. And I think there is no justice. This person's gotten away with it. To that John says, and God says, there is a higher throne, and there is one who is sitting on it, who is the most high God, and all will give account to him. He is the final judge. Even when things don't go right or are unjust in this world, there is a final judge, and he is holy, holy, holy. So be encouraged, God's people. There's a higher throne. Be also encouraged that everything is in God's hand. That scroll, there's enough encouragement in that scroll, just that scroll, that we ought to walk out of here dancing today. Why do I say that? What, we live in a world, don't we, where it always feels like everything's teetering on the brink of like implosion, explosion, destruction, right? When I was writing this sermon, while I was writing this sermon, the University of Texas was closed down by a terrorist threat. Mobs were attacking embassies across North Africa, 
And Valparaiso University was also facing a terrorist threat. This morning I look on the news and there's an armada of, of ships gathering because people are convinced that Israel's going to bomb Iran. And what does it mean for gas prices? And law in the presidential election. And oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it always feels on the global level like everything's about to just blow up, doesn't it? And then there's the local and the personal, right? And these relationships and the trials that I'm facing and the difficulties that I have, we can wonder, can't we oftentimes, is this world, is it just chaos? Is it just random? And then we look and we see that there is one on the highest throne who holds in his hand a scroll that is the predetermined, decreed will of God for the outcome of all of history. And we see that this is not a random world that we live in. It is a determined world. It is a decreed world. And the one who is offering the decree promises that he is working out for those that love him everything for good. And so God's people, we just, I mean, you could just, I could just do a message on the scroll. Just the scroll. Thank you for coming today. I'm giving a message on the scroll. And we could leave here dancing. Why? Because God holds the scroll in his hand. And that means that he's the one that's in charge. And when we get that and understand that all of these other apparently chaotic events in life find a sense of purpose and meaning, and it helps us to get through the day, he has the scroll. And those are the free ones and not the main point. I just throw those out. Here's the money application and our main point today is to recognize and to realize and to treasure and to savor that everything, everything is about the unveiling of the glory of the Lamb, the glory of Christ. I wonder if you see it here. God the Father holds a scroll and that scroll is all about the unveiling of, of the glory of Christ. There are seals on that scroll, and there isn't an angel or a human being that is worthy to open those seals. But Christ is worthy to open the seals. He is the slain lamb who stands. He is the cross-killed lamb who was resurrected. He is the little lamb with all the glory. And what do we see in the story? The greatest angels of heaven bow down before him. The elders bow down before him. The angelic hosts bow down before him. Every man, every woman who has ever lived, who has ever will live, great and, 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 and small, bow down before him. And what is the unanimous chant of all of heaven? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to him, not to us, not to me, but to him. Be all the glory, all the praise, all of the honor. Worthy is the Lamb. And I wonder, can we read a passage like this and not realize what all of this is really all about? It is not about us. It is not about you. It is not about me. It's not about Bethel Church. It's not about the United States of America. 
It's not about the economy, stupid. It is about Christ and the unveiling in redemptive history, the showing more and more of how glorious, how wonderful, how praiseworthy, how loving, how obedient, how merciful, how gracious, how powerful, how glorious is Christ. And we see this unveiling and God's purpose in all of this. We gloriously have a role in it, and our salvation is bound up in the glory of Christ, which is why I can say to you, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you will be saved. Why? Because God the Father is committed to glorifying the Son in your salvation, and he won't lose you. He will save you to the uttermost. And that is why our security is bound up, not in our ability to be faithful to him, but in his commitment to be faithful to us to the glory of Christ. All of it. You can go on and on with this thing. It is all about him. And friends, I've said that now. This is my 16th message doing it, 15 years of saying this around here. And I was thinking to myself, even yesterday, I was, I was praying about the weekend, and I thought, I wonder, you know what? 16, that's a lot of time. Would I ever come up with something different? Like, okay, we've sort of done the all about him thing. Now let's try something else. And I thought to myself, what else would I do? I don't even know what I would come up with. What else could be more important than, than this? Do you see what I'm saying? Nothing can change. I think when I'm old and gray and Jennifer's still young and hot, I, <laughs> I will... I will, I don't know what I would say differently than this because it is the message of the Bible. It is the message of Christianity. It is the message of everything, that it's about Christ. And he will always be to us enough. He will always be to us fascinating. He will always be to us worthy of me giving another day to living for his glory and going on in my life for him. That will always be the case. And this is the beauty, I think, of the truth, and it is also the danger of it. Because anything that you do a lot, we become familiar with it, and we're like, oh, okay. And even doctrinal truths like this that ought to just stay alive in our hearts, they have a way of sort of uh, growing cold, don't they? This was brought home to me this last summer. I went on a Reformation study tour, and we went and studied the, Re the Reformation and the Reformers. And so we went to Geneva, Switzerland. And if I could take everybody in a rocket ship right now, go over to Geneva and land at Reformers Park, we'd all get out of the ship. you say, wow, I wasn't expecting that today. Uh, but what a great service when we get to ride a rocket. And, and you, would, you would get out of the rocket, and I would say, hey, look at this really amazing display. And here's, here's a picture of it. It's known as Reformers Wall. And they've got, you don't get the size of it like, those guys are like 20 feet tall. It's really big. And, uh, and so they got statues of, of, of the reformers, and engraved on the walls are certain truths that God used to transform Europe and the Reformation. It's a very powerful display. You, we would all stand there, and we look at that, and we think to ourselves, Geneva must be the godliest city in the entire world. Because look at these truths that they have engraved in stone. Geneva is largely atheistic. It is morally and spiritually bankrupt. How could that happen? I mean, they put it in stone. 
And this, my friends, is what happens, even with great transformational truths. When our little slogans and our mantras reside upon something that hangs on the wall instead of being a reality in the heart. And that really is the bottom line on All About Him weekend. It's not whether or not Bethel Church celebrates the glory of Christ, but whether in the heart and the passion of the people of our church, there is a treasuring and a savoring of who Christ is and what he has done that allows there to be the kind of passion that we see in that worship service, a passion for Christ. And can I ask you, Christian, today, and I say this with love and tenderness, but have you maybe, is there a little bit of Geneva in your heart as it relates to things like this, the glory of Christ, where, oh yes, it's on the wall. We've got it at home. I've got it as a bookmark in my Bible. Who cares? Is it true in your heart? Is there a passion? And if not, why not? And maybe today, I'm not given five ways to have a passion for Jesus. I'm just putting him out there like Revelation 5 does in his glory and saying, look at him. Can we love him? Can we treasure him more than we have this last year? And move forward as a congregation squarely centered upon the glory and the supremacy of our Savior and doing what we do for him and for his glory. And that is the goal. A church that treasures Christ as our everything. So many things that can distract, good things, you know, that, oh, we're kind of, we, we really got to be about this. And we really, really, really got to be about that. And there are really good things that we need to be about. But the bottom line must remain our bottom line. That this whole thing, we are committed corporately together as a church to doing what we do and the way that we do it in every quadrant of our ministry so that Christ is exalted and lifted high in northwest Indiana, that he might draw men to himself, as he said, that God might be glorified and Christ might be unveiled in all of his glory. So that is our purpose. Is it yours? A church aflame with passion for him, our worthy lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Bottom line, worthy is the lamb that was slain. So why don't we take a few moments of quiet meditation here. I'd like to give you a few moments for you and God to ponder and to meditate, to pray. And then we will, then we will worship.